Pop Culture Affidavit Episode 52. It was just as if everyone had swelled. Episode 52 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and with this episode, I'm wrapping up my month's worth of blog posts and podcast episodes about high school reunions. Prior to this, I talked about Beautiful Girls in episode 51 and wrote blog posts about the films Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion and Since You've Been Gone. This time around, I'm taking a look at my all-time favorite high school reunion movie, and this is the 1997 John Cusack film, Gross Point Blank. To talk about it, I've got a special guest. He's been a guest on here before. and We actually talked about a couple of Cusack flicks as well as a number of topics. He is a prolific podcaster. He can be heard on From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, Tales of the Justice Society of America, Comics Monthly Monday, Bailey's Batman podcast, and views from the long box, among other things. Please welcome Michael Bailey back to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Tom. Always a pleasure. Hey, no problem. So what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to take a quick break. And uh, when Mike and I come back, I'm going to give the plot synopsis. And then we are going to talk about Gross Point Blank. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who. I don't care for anime. I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series, or issue, or character, or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com 
from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comics or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Sir, I want to read you something. I'm working, Marcella. Dear Point High alumni, can you believe it's been ten years since you left Gross Point? Don't tease me, you know what I do for a living. I just honestly don't know what I have in common with those people anymore. And what am I going to say? Killed the president of Paraguay with a fork. How have you been? Go see some old friends. Have some punch. Visit with what's her name? Debbie. Don't kill anybody for a few days. See what it feels like. I'll give it a shot. No, no, don't give it a shot. Don't shoot anything. I, uh, I'm a pet psychiatrist. I sell concentrate. And I lead a weekend men's group. We specialize in ritual killings. Hi, I'm Martin. You remember me? Oh, I know who you are. Who I miss? What, since you stood me up on prom night and vanished without a word? Home. I got you, babe. I'm putting together a little concern. You like a union? Random Mouth. You in trouble? Random Mouth. Just a moment. Random Mouth. Welcome back, Pointer. You haven't changed a bit. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do, Mark? Professional killer. Good for you, it's a industry. Do you have to do postgraduate work for that or can you can you jump right in? There's a contract out in your life, but I'm not gonna do it. It's either because I'm in love with your daughter or I have a newfound respect for life. I'm pumped because either in love with that guy's daughter, he has a newfound respect for life. Debbie, I'm in love with you. But I know we can make this relationship work. It's not easy for me. I always control my emotions. I just need time to change. Why don't you just join the union? This union is gonna be meetings? Of course! No meetings. I want you to think about this, and you don't have to answer it now. But Debbie, will you marry me? And we're back. So, Gross Point Blank was directed by George Armitage. It was written by John Cusack, as well as Tom Jankowitz, Steve Pink, and D.B. DeFacentis. It premiered in theaters in April 11, 1997, and made a total of $28 million at the box office. This puts it in 74th place for 1997, which is only one three places and $1.2 million behind the other big high school reunion movie that came out in 1997, which is Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. It made more than Air Bud, though. The highest grossing movie in 1997, by the way, is Titanic. By the way, number 12 on that list was Batman and Robin. That piece of shit made $107 million. Anyway, our movie stars John Cusack as Martin Blank, a professional hitman. When the film opens, he is on the job and communicating with his secretary, Marcella, played by Joan Cusack, who decides to very cheerfully read him the invitation to his high school reunion. Martin finishes the job, which is picking off an assassin who is on a bike, but is then dismayed to find out the people he was ultimately protecting are gunned down by another hitman, Grocer, who is played by Dan Aykroyd. Grocer and Martin meet at a separate location to discuss the snafu, and Grocer offers Martin membership in basically what is an assassin's union. Martin turns it down and then goes to do another job, which involves a you-only-live-twice type of poisoning. 
This doesn't go well. The guy he was supposed to poison turns his head, wakes up, and Martin is forced to shoot him. The clients are unhappy and send him another job to make up for it. This job happens to be in Detroit, which is where Martin is originally from, and it's the same weekend as his high school reunion. Martin talks to this very, very reluctant therapist, Dr. Oatman, who's played by Alan Arkin, who advises him to go to the reunion, reconnect with old friends, oh, and not kill anyone for a while. So he's going to his high school reunion. He arrives in Gross Point, which, are, if you're unfamiliar with the area, is a very nice suburb of Detroit. He tools around for a little while. He stops by his old house and discovers that, well, it's not his old house anymore, and instead, it's an Ultimart convenience store. What are you doing here? I'm doing a double shift. What's it look like? How long have you worked here? A couple months. Yeah? Is the manager here? Do you have a supervisor? No. How long have they worked here? I'm not telling you. Yeah? Where do you live? I'm not telling you that either. Where's your manager live? Who? I used to. What, what, what are you doing here? What are I you, work here. What are you doing here? I work here. And how long have you worked here? Only a couple months. All right, all right. What's done is done. Let's forget about the whole thing. You all right, man? Sure. Sure. I will get back to you shortly. Dr. Oatman, please pick up, pick up. It's Martin Blank. I'm, I'm standing where my uh, living room was, and it's not here because my house is gone, and it's an Ultimart. You can never go home again, Oatman. But I guess you can shop there. Ugh. Pick up! I know you're there, Oatman. Martin then proceeds to reconnect with two important people from his past. The first is Paul, played by longtime Cusack friend Jeremy Piven, who's now a real estate agent, more or less winds up being both his tour guide through Gross Point and then his sidekick later on. I'm sorry about the temper. No, I, don't, I, don't, I don't even... Yeah. Listen, I, I usually pimp my friends, but I got a, an excellent piece of property I think you might want to look at. I got a few minutes. Listen, I got to get something off my chest. Have you been home to see the old house? Yeah. yeah. Torn down in the name of convenience. Yeah, uh, I, I, I brokered the deal. I tried to wow. get a, I tried to get a family in there, but wow. uh, Ultimart made the best offer. Well, thank so. you for profiting on my childhood. Take a look at this uh, new listing. Debbie's house. Yeah. Kind of crept up on you, didn't it? No, you drove us here. Yep. So, uh, so how's the family, man? Oh, you didn't know? Of course you don't know. You no, know I mean, I, 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 yeah, I mean, parents no. are divorced. They got divorced? Yeah, my dad's 
shacking up with this woman. She's like 20 years younger than him. She's like a biscuit older than me. It's ugly. My mom's wow. making ceramic nightlights. Takes like the plain shells and. How's your sister? Did you, ever, did you ever marry that guy, Kenny? Kenny? Yeah. I mean, did that ever work out? <laughs> Come on, man. He did three years at Joliet. They put one of those bracelets on him. Like a low jack, you know? They know where he is at all times. I think he's at Pizza Hut right now. So let's not go there. No. Yeah. Yeah. So you look good. You seem good. Thank you. You may have, uh. Ten years, man! Ten! Where have you been for ten years? I freaked out, joined the army, went into business for myself. I'm a professional killer. Oh, does that do you have to do postgraduate work for that or can you can you jump right in? I'm, I'm curious about that. It's, not, it's an open market. Open market, yeah. that's good. Wow. Ten years, man! Ten ten years! Ten years! Ten! Ten years! Ten years! I freaked out. I joined the army. I worked for the government. I went into business with myself. I'm a professional killer. That's what I did. Okay, well, can I join up? Yes! <laughs> he also reunites with Debbie Newberry, his ex-girlfriend, who's played by Minnie Driver. But this isn't any normal ex-girlfriend here. Debbie was the girl that he abandoned on prom night in order to leave Gross Point and join the army, which eventually led to his life as a professional killer. Debbie is a local disc jockey, and as much as she tries to play it cool when Martin walks unannounced into her studio while she's on the air, she's clearly shocked that this guy who left her stranded on prom night has come back into her life. All of this, of course, adds up to an emotional story arc where Martin is incredibly dissatisfied with what his life has become, is taking stock of things, and is actually considering retirement. Reuniting with Debbie, whom he has told Dr. Oatman that he has recurring dreams about, is one of the ways he thinks he can make this happen, and it seems that it might happen, especially when she decides to give him a chance and be his date for the reunion. But there, of course, is a complication, and it involves Grocer, some federal agents, and another assassin named Felix Lapubel, who is played by the famous kickboxer Benny the Jet Urquidez. Lapubel is in town to kill Martin because of a job that Martin botched in Oregon some time ago, where he accidentally killed a prized show dog named Boudreaux. Grocer's pissed off not only that Martin won't join his union, but he has taken the Detroit job that he was supposed to have. So what he did for revenge is fed Martin to these two federal agents who were played by Hank Azaria and K. Todd Freeman, who are honestly pretty bumbling as far as federal agents go. Lapu Bells tries to kill Martin in the Ultimate Mart, but is unsuccessful, though he is successful in blowing up the Ultimate. And Grocer and Martin have a verbal confrontation at a local diner where Grocer basically ups the ante, saying that getting Martin to join the union is not enough anymore, and he's eventually going to be the one who kills him. The big night of the reunion, which is held at Gross Point High School, arrives. Martin calls Oatman, who is still incredibly reluctant to be his therapist, and then Martin picks up Debbie and they head to the reunion. There are a couple of pretty funny cameos in the scene, Jenna Elfman for one, and a couple of touching moments, especially one where Martin holds a baby while Queen and Bowie's under pressure plays, and it's actually a moment of epiphany for him. He does realize that he doesn't want to be a hitman anymore, and he wants a life with Debbie. Martin and Debbie sneak off to hook up, and then Martin rooms the hall of the high school a bit. He stops by his old locker, and while he's there, Lapubel attacks him. Martin fights back and kills him in self-defense using a pen. Just as he's sitting there with Lapubel's dead body, Debbie comes into the hallway and runs off in complete shock. Paul shows up a few minutes later, and he helps Martin dispose of the body in the high school's furnace. Later in his hotel room, Debbie confronts Martin, basically telling him off.
Just gonna kill you, right? Yes. It wasn't the other way around. No, no. That wasn't my intention. Is it something you've done? It's something I do professionally for, for about five years now. You were joking. People joke about the horrible things that they don't do. They don't do them. It's absurd. When I left, I joined the army. And when I took the service exam, my psych profile fit a certain moral flexibility would be the only way to describe it. I was loaned out to a CIA-sponsored program. And we sort of found each other. That's the way it works. So you, you're a government spook? Yes. I mean, no, I was before, but I'm not now. Uh, but that's all irrelevant, really. The idea of governments, nations, is public relations theory at this point. Don't, I don't want to hear about the theories. I want to hear about the dead people. Explain the dead people. Who do you kill? That's very complicated, but in the beginning, you know, it matters, of course, that you have something to hang on to, you know, a specific ideology to defend, right? I mean, taming unchecked aggression, that was my personal favorite. Other guys like live free or die, but, you know, you get the idea, but that's all bullshit. And I know that now. That's all bullshit. You do it because you're trained to do it. You were encouraged to do it. And ultimately, you know, you get to like it. I know that sounds bad. You're a psychopath. No, no, no. Psychopath kills for no reason. I kill for money. It's a job. That didn't sound right. Uh, let me see if I can put it another way. If I show up at your door, chances are you did something to bring me there. I mean, everybody's doing it. It's like the natural order. I mean, uh, the states do it. Sometimes there's due process, and sometimes pilots carpet bomb cities, you know? Riot cops shoot demonstrators. That's indiscriminate. I don't do that. You should read the files on some of these fuckers. I mean, it reads like a demon's resume. Look, I bottomed out here. I've lost my taste for it completely. That's why I came back, and I wanted to see you. You know, I wanted to start over. Leave that behind. Oh, so I'm part of... I'm part of your romantic new beginning, right? How come you never learned that it was wrong? That there are certain things you do not do. You do not do in a civilized society. Yeah, what civilizations are we talking about? Oh, shut up. I mean, history. Shut up! Everything about you is a lie. Everything. Stay away from me. Debbie, don't go. You don't get to have me. Don't you get it? You're overreacting. Yeah! Yeah! He then decides to take down his hit life as a hitman, calling Dr. Oatman to fire him. And then he calls Marcella to say goodbye and direct her some, to some cash that he's got hidden in the office as a severance package. things right and then I'll find you. Why? It's not like that, Marcella. Look under your desk. I left a little something for you. All the way under. 
profit sharing. You deserve it. After all that, he finally opens the dossier of the job he was supposed to do. The target is Debbie's father, who is being targeted for his whistleblowing testimony that he's given against the automobile industry. The next morning, Grocer attempts to kill Mr. Newberry, but Martin saves him at the same time, and we have a climactic shootout in the Newberry home that ends with Grocer and Martin firing one another across a half wall between the house's kitchen and living room, and Martin finally killing Grocer by smashing a television over his head. Martin asks Debbie to marry him. I want you to think about this, and you don't have to answer it now. Will you marry me? You got my blessing. And the last scene is them heading down the highway together in a convertible while the violent femmes play. All right, so that's the that's the plot. Of, that's what happens. My best attempt at a full plot synopsis of Gross Point Blank. Uh, Mike, I saw this movie uh, with with Amanda back when we were dating back in 1997. Uh, saw it in a theater of a pretty crappy theater in in Stafford, Virginia, but that's where we saw a lot of our movies because it's all you really can do in Stafford, Virginia, on a weekend. Uh, what's what's your memory of going going to see this one? Well, it was the late 90s, so I went to see a whole crap ton of films. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is why I'm surprised I missed out on things. And, uh, you know, like other, other huge films from that time period that I just completely missed. Yeah. But me and, uh, my, my buddy Ryan and I would, would go see just about any, everything that came out. It's like, if it was a Friday or a Saturday, we'd look at what was the new movies that were hitting. And, uh, I was a mark for John Cusack films. Yeah, me too. Uh, because I I, I I liked Cusack and Cusack was having a bit of a renaissance in the in the mid nineties. Yes, like you know he he was having a pretty good career in the eighties. You know he did you know say anything is one mm-hmm. of those seminal movies, and then it seemed like he just made a couple missteps with what he was doing. But then you know like movies like Con Air, mm-hmm. hell I saw City Hall. In the I theater. saw City Hall in the theater as well. Can't tell you a thing about that film. But uh, I remember that he and Al Pacino were in it. Yes, Al Pacino and him and who was the chick? I want to say it was Bridget Fonda. That was his uh, voice coach on that film Hmm. Uh, several years ago. She came into work to type up a book because that's what she does for a living. And she (laughs) said she worked with like, it's like she worked with John Cusack and Jeremy Piven and, and John. And I was just like, you worked with Piven? She's like, and her exact words were, you know who Jeremy Piven is? So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I just want you to imagine, though, in the 90s, that John Cusack, Jeremy Piven, and the guy who was the jerk doctor from Scrubs yeah, uh, all lived in a house together. I want you to wrap your <laughs> mind around that. Uh, so we... It's, we like I said, we went to see everything. So it was a John Cusack film. I somehow missed High Fidelity. Don't ask how that happened. It was a John Cusack film. We knew Dan Aykroyd was in it, mm-hmm. and you know, m- I always want to call her Mimi Driver, but I know it's Mini <laughs> Driver. Uh, so it was just like it had everything that we would want to go see in a film. I mean, we went to see you know. Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion as well. So it was at this theater in Fayetteville. Uh, Fayetteville is an interesting town in that it is 
dictated by the Walmart, like where the center of town is. So when I moved down here, Walmart was in this one shopping center and next to it was a newer shopping center that had like this movie theater. And and the first time I ever went to it, I thought the Joker had designed the place because it was like purple and green and had like eight or six or eight theaters in it. And it's where everyone went to see like new movies in Fayetteville. So it was crowded as hell. This was before the big uh, AMC 24 opened up two towns over, uh-huh. uh, which would kind of sounded the death knell. Now that's this theater is like a dollar 75 theater and it smells continuously of cat piss. And I just really haven't figured <laughs> that out, but we went to see it and I, I just loved this movie. I just, from the front, from the word go, everything about this film makes me happy. It had great dialogue it is John Cusack doing what John Cusack does best, and it's just playing these complicated characters. Uh, it had that whole going home thing, which hit me a lot harder last year, huh? Uh, with my high with my high school reunion. But it was it was also one of those movies that had like moments in it that you just remembered like you know him and piven driving down the street and in the middle of it you know jeremy piven goes 10 years <laughs> and just starts freaking out on him and then being completely normal and then freaking out again yeah and and what makes this better than a number of comedies from the 90s where you where all you remember are just a few moments and then there's another hour and a half of the movie that you've chosen to ignore is how tightly written this movie is. Oh God. Yes. And how it does not fall into the trap of having to be an action film at the end and ditch all the comedy that it is funny right up until the end. Um, you know, with that, I mean, just with the, the th- it's just like, almost like a throwaway joke where he's like, Debbie, you don't have to answer this now, but will you marry me? And her father's like, you have my blessing, you know, like, and then she just shuts, she the, door. shuts the door, you know, and it's, 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 it, it has moments like that, like all the way up until the end. And you're right. There are moments in there that just kind of add to it. His back and forth with Alan Arkin is so funny the scene where he fires him and he's like i want you to take a deep breath and realize that this is me firing you and alan arkin is shaking the because it's being played over the answering machine in his office while there's a patient in the room and he's shaking the answering machine trying to yeah. get it to stop and he just throws it across the room well alan arkin was really dependable for that type of role yeah throughout the 90s it's like you know if you've ever seen the slums of beverly hills it's kind of a similar it's kind of a similar dynamic but you know you know i can't even like go in order because this movie is all a big jumble in my head we don't have to go in order and that's the beauty of this movie (laughs) you have joan cusack like doing the comedic role of her life i mean i i know not since toys do I think that she just had like the most meat to kind of chew on in a role? It's just like, you know, yeah, her in, um, in uh, high fidelity was mm-hmm. hilarious. And <laughs> now if the DVD I have of this film is a two pack with gross. Oh, really? 
so, but the scene where she is on the phone with that guy <laughs> and she is just bawling him out. I was just like, God, she must have had so much fun shooting that scene. And she's on the other line with her friend yeah. about making a soup. Yeah. And she starts, she gets right back. It's not going to be a boring soup. Um, Her and her brother have very good chemistry together. And as a, you and I have both have sisters. And... um you take that for granted, but at the same time, you know, we've seen people on screen who are related to one another or who are couples and there's no chemistry. Mm -hmm. Um, But this, this goes, I mean, they're in 16 candles together, but they don't have a single scene in 16 candles together from what I remember. They they don't interact, but if, um, but if you're, if you want to watch the two of them on screen together, you rent this, you rent high fidelity and you rent say anything. And it's just there. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, Cusack wrote, wrote part of this movie was, was part of the writing part of the production of this movie and, and obviously had her in mind for something like this. The I'm taking down the office now and she's pouring gasoline all over the room and destroying the CPU. And then, and then it's like, he says, look in the thing and she thinks it's going to be a bomb, but it's cash. Mm -hmm. And she looks like honestly touched that he didn't kill her. Yeah. Well, his entire family is in this film. Yes. The drunk woman that comes up to him and uh, Mimi Driver uh, at the restaurant, I was just like, is that one of his... And then it turns out, yes, it's one of his sisters. So it's just, it's kind of strange. The the one thing I want to get out of the way, because I'm just a mark for this type of thing, is I I think what endeared this film, you know, outside of like the great dialogue... Mm-hmm. And the funny sequences. It's like in the middle of it, there's this badass hand-to-hand combat scene. Yes. Where he and the little guy just go at each other. And I'm yeah. just like, it's sloppy. But at the same time, it's tight. Yeah. It's like they tried to make it look real. And I keep forgetting, you know, that he had the whole kickboxing thing in mm-hmm. in uh in Say Anything. And that comes to comes to the fore here. Yeah, but even then, the comedy isn't sacrificed because that guy coming to town, and then him getting you know like his badge at the front desk of the reunion, like <laughs> I am whoever is just like like he's all proud of it. Yeah, and then after he kills him, he and Minnie Driver have to hide the body. No, he and Piven hide the body. Oh, he and Piven hide the body because she she sees it, freaks out, she and runs freaks out, and runs away. Yeah, yeah, and and. and... And they they have um, a great use of ninety nine lift balloons by Nina to to do the soundtrack for that scene, and they throw them in the furnace, and then and then Piven like lights a cigarette. He's like, "Hi, I'm whatever. What yeah. do you do for a living?" <laughs> the you know I've noticed. Um, God, I can't remember how many times I've seen this movie, but um, I did notice on watching it for this episode how that scene um and the 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 fighter as i mentioned in my synopsis is uh, the 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 french guy felix la poubelle is played by benny the jet urquides who was a champion kickboxer uh-huh um and you can tell because he yeah. moves amazingly well yeah and um but i did notice that they shot it very like almost independent film long take not a lot of not a ton of cuts, not a, 
it it's it, there's not a ton of soundtrack to it it's it's just no. like you like you are sitting back and watching these two you know f- fight about it there is a song that's going on i want to say it's mirror in the bathroom or something but um but it's it's not intrusive in the way that you know or they don't they don't square off no, it's it, it's not like a Van Damme fight scene, yeah, or uh, yeah. or or even like you know going to another Cusack film like Con Air, mm-hmm. where you know they have like the long glory shot of you know uh, Nick Cage doing like a spin kick Ugh. and all that, which is which I enjoy because I love Con Air as a film. Yeah, um, but what I loved about this one is, like I said before, it's a dirty fight. These are two guys that are contract killers going at each other. It's not going to be the hero and the, and the bad guy kind of squaring off. It's not going to be like Brandon Lee fighting. What's his name from die hard and, and uh lethal weapon at the end of um, what was that? Rapid Why can't fire. I... Yeah. Rapid fire. Yeah. Like the fight scene. He, well, one of the best fight scenes of that entire film yeah. is him and whatever. I forget the dude's name, but it's like this, it's, it's ballet. It's, yeah. You know, there's knives and stuff And here. I mean, he kills him with a freaking pen. Yeah. So it, it's whatever is there and it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Like they're, like you said, they don't square off. He's at his locker. He shuts the door and that dude's right there. Yeah. And, 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 and it's on, it's like, there's no like, you know, Oh, so you're here to, and I'm going to, well, there's, blah, blah, there's blah, no, and, there's no, at, at no point in the movie do those two have any dialogue either. No, I think that's really important too, because if this were a movie and, and the same thing with anybody he is after, there's never any dialogue. Mm-hmm. This isn't, a lifetime movie or a somebody's yeah. out to get me movie. This is the, and, and they, they play that really, really well. The, um, I also love the fact that they all, they basically subvert the trope, um, of, you know, the person closest to you is the person you're going to have to kill by having him open the dossier after the reunion. Cause he still has to do the job. Yes. And he knows it because I think he knows at that point where mini driver, she does that great you don't get to have me speech and she leaves uh-huh. and she walks out on him and he's in the back of his mind he's like this this is over but he also knows that he knows he's going to quit and but he knows that if he doesn't do this job whoever hired him is going to go after him for not yeah. doing the job so he has to do the job he opens the dossier and it's her father and of course it's her father, but he subverts it by just saying, dumb fucking luck. And I love that scene because it just does it. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. of course it is. And it doesn't seem as cliche as it would in a million other movies that do this. Well, well, well the, the, the great thing is, is like you said, the comedy and the in the character isn't isn't lost in the final scene. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of that has to do with the fact that the guy he's fighting is Dan Aykroyd. Who looks like a teamster, by the way, and yeah, I love he's, it. He's, he's like a freaking Mack truck in this film, <laughs> and he's got you know he's doing the comedy thing like I'm gonna be blowing your fucking head off, I'm gonna be blowing your fucking head off, and it's just you know, and them like you know going at it through this house and him trying to save her and her father, 
and and all that stuff. That's why you don't have to sacrifice the comedy in the final sequence. Yeah. Because everybody in it is in it for the comedy, you know? Yeah, and and the the dialogue back and forth where they're shooting at each other is like, join my union, we'll go upstairs and we'll kill daddy together. And he's like, there's going to be meetings? Of course, no meetings. And they start shooting. (laughs) Because the whole movie, he's trying to get him to join a union. It's like... Like I said, he looks like a teamster, and it, it 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 took me a couple of times watching this movie to realize that. Not well, that, that he that, was trying to get him to join union, but he was dressed like a teamster the entire movie. The breakfast meeting they have, oh, God. Uh, where you know Dan Aykroyd just freaking loses it yeah. and like scares the crap out of the waitress, <laughs> and all Cusack is trying to do is have breakfast. <laughs> Just... And, and he gets into an argument over the, with the waitress over an egg white omelet. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, the action in this film, the callbacks to other movies, mm-hmm. you know, the you, you Only Live Twice bit, um, the uh, I have read on the Internet Movie Database that the killing of the bike messenger, the bike assassin in the beginning of the film is a nod to better off dead. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, the, the, I think we talked about that when we talked about, I better think we off did. Dead. Yeah, I think we did. Um, Cause he, he wouldn't recognize the film for the longest time. No. And then with that, it was just it was like him coming to to terms with it by you know killing the bike messenger. So yeah, and um, there's a scene in there's a very split second scene in Hot Tub Time Machine where they're at the ski resort. Somebody skis by, screams, "I want my two dollars!" And he just kind of he does a very quick eye roll where it's like, "Yeah, we we got the reference of the Ultimart fight." Yes, is a great one. Well, the thing about that scene, and uh, and I when I when I talked about going to my high school reunion, <laughs> yes, la- uh, last year uh, on a on an episode of Views a couple months ago, you know, I, I never had the moment where I go and my my childhood home has been turned into a convenience store, uh, which was set up great. Like Pivens, like you've been home, <laughs> <laughs> and. But, you know, that moment where, you know, Live and Let Die is playing and he walks up and his house is into a convenience store. Uh, I don't know how that works, but it's one of the best bits of physical comedy in the, in the movie. Because outside, it looks like a house mm-hmm. that has been turned into a convenience store. And I never had that specific moment because my the house I, I I lived in where I went to high school and all that is still there. In fact, it looks great. The entire neighborhood looks great. It's like they planted. We moved in there new. The neighborhood was new in 1986 when okay. we moved in, and they had planted trees in front of all of the houses, and it was just a tree. It wasn't like you know it was it was brand new. They had just planted it. So the nine years we lived there, I never really thought about it. But when I drove through and they were all like fully grown and gorgeous, I'm just like, Oh my God, this is fantastic. Too bad. Mom didn't get to see this. She would have loved it. But, um, but I did have a couple moments where live and let die was kind of playing. Like when I went to the grocery store 
where I bought like the comics that started everything for me. It's been turned into like a belk. And that just depressed the crap out of me. So I understand this scene a lot better now. Yeah. Uh, having gone to my high school reunion, I didn't have to kill anybody, which is ironic because we, we, the reunion I went to took place at a casino. And usually when you move away and move back and your hometown has opened up a casino, that's because the town's going to crap and you have to save it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, luckily I didn't have to do that. But no, that, that scene... One of my favorite parts of that sequence is that the song is playing really loud on the soundtrack, yeah. and then you open the door, and it's Muzak. <laughs> Inside right the store. Right where it picks off. Yeah. Right, oh, it was just fantastic. They, they, they really paid attention to detail in this movie. Mm-hmm. And because... Because they had to. I mean, it is a... Deep down, this is a dark comedy. The yes. man, he is a professional hitman. This man is not a good guy. No, not at all. I and mean, you have to be sympathetic to him. Well, I think the thing is, the, where he sells me on his character is, you know, we have seen in, in film before the the cop, the bad guy, the good guy, whatever, that's yeah. just at the end of their rope with their chosen profession, you know, where he sold me was at the end of the film. You know, I left and I realized I wanted to kill somebody and I had to leave town. So when he said that, it actually, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Like, this guy is damaged. He knows he's damaged. He doesn't want to hurt anybody he cares about. Not a sociopath or yeah. a complete sociopath. Um, He's got a borderline personality disorder. Yeah. But so he goes and joins an organization that will allow him to do this. Like it's, it's kind of like Dexter almost where Mm -hmm. he's a serial killer, but he's going to kill bad guys, you know? So whatever, but no, that, that, that whole sequence where the kids play in the video game (laughs) back when, convenience stores had video, video games, games and that yeah. was a thing uh and just you know like like the fight going on behind the kid as he's just tuned out because he's got his headphones in it's just like uh, and it puts the 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 bomb in the microwave yeah it's just it's, it's well, well you mentioned his damage you mentioned how he's killing dexter's a good analogy because a couple of times he has a line along the lines of uh, later on when he talks to to um, Debbie about what he does, what he truly talks to her about. He says, "Chances, if if I'm coming to see you, chances are you did something to bring me there." Yeah, and like early on in the movie, even because the the one he botches the one assassination in the guy's bedroom when he's sleeping because the guy rolls over and then he has to shoot the guy and the guy's like, you know, whatever it is, I'll double it. It was supposed to look like a, it was supposed to look like an accident. Yeah. Yeah. And the guy's like, you know, whatever, you know, whatever they're paying you, I'll double it. He's just like, it's not me. And there it's cold. Yeah. At the end though, it's like, you know, he, it's, it's him there. It's cold at the end of the movie. He's toward the end of the movie. He's trying to rationalize it. And you're right, he just, he works through the whole thing by the end. So, 
and to be fair, he's he's killing another professional killer, so it's not like oh uh, yeah, you know, just this is one of those movies also where the 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 scenery is as much in the the setting is like I bought into this town, mm-hmm. like I loved this. I want to go live in this town. <laughs> Like like the the way it's all set up with the the you know the kind of the almost cobblestone roads and such and it's just I think what really wins this film over though is how endearing it is. Mm-hmm. Like you know you can you can go through him and Piven working together because Cusack and Piven is good value no matter what. Yes, those two have a chemistry that 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 just goes beyond. You can tell they're friends in real life. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's funny to think that Piven was the bully in One Crazy Summer. Yes. And then he's the, I have your keys in Say Anything. <laughs> so it's it, it's just amazing to watch. And, you know, their conversation, Piven and his conversation in the car, you know, where he does the 10 years. Yeah. But I, 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 st- I, I use a bit of that dialogue to this day, when I'm talking to somebody, it's like he's a biscuit younger than I am. Yeah. And I'm just like, and then I, you know, every time I say it and every time I say it in the film, I'm like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> but it doesn't matter because he sells it. Yeah. And, you know, it's just like, throughout the movie, Cusack is telling people, I'm a professional killer. And everyone's like, yeah, you know, it's like got some smart ass reaction yeah. to it. Like, oh, oh, you're obviously joking. It's a gross industry. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then the the argument they have with the security guy at the house. He's like, I show people, I show the house all the time. Well, you're not supposed to. It's just like this mundane, yeah. like thing that he has to deal with. And here's Cusack, who's a professional killer in the middle of all this. It's all surreal and awesome. Yeah, and and funny thing is, I come from a town not that rich. Yeah. But a a town very much like that, where there is a downtown like that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't have Debbie Newberry, you know, playing her songs over the radio in front of a radio station, which I thought was cool. Uh, but you know, the I think what what struck me is the on the high school reunion side of things, you know. Aside from the professional killer, because the professional killer kind of adds this dimension to that reunion. But on the reunion side of things, it's so natural. Oh God. It's just like you I I I, I watched it and I'm like, God, this is what happened at my reunion. It was completely different. It's it's like a decade apart. Mm-hmm. Uh because you know, he graduated I guess the character graduated in like eighty six. It was eighty six. I think it was on the on the po- on one of the posters, um, it's eighty six. So that's like, you know, eight years before I'm graduating. So there, there's yeah. obviously a difference there. But Piven standing, hey, Jenny Slater. Hey, Jenny Slater. <laughs> hey, Jenny Slater. Hey, Jenny Slater. And me and my friend Ryan would do that when we would try to get each other's attention. Like yeah. if we were distracted, it's like, you know, it's like, just that kind of thing where she just ignores him. And then he's like, Paul Sperky, I, I wrote these papers. Oh. Like. <laughs> But then they end up dancing together later. Yeah. That's the weird thing, and and it's probably him, involved. Him dealing with the baby, mm-hmm. like looking at this baby, like he doesn't even understand what a child is. Yeah, and uh, just you know, you had those conver- I had those conversations where you know there, there's like the three or four people you really want to talk to, and then there are the people you have the hey 
conversation. Yeah, with. exactly. <laughs> well, and the the other the the rent a cop guy, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Uh, coming in, he's got his gun on him, and he's like the fucking honor society people putting stars on their name tags, like it matters. You were in an honor society ten years ago. It's just like <laughs> stuff like that. There are so many natural conversations over the course of the night of the reunion. Like the one girl giving out the badges is just excited about her job. Yeah, <laughs> and then um, the one guy, the heavy, the, the jock who yeah. tries to pick a fight with him because he's just blasted out of his mind. Yeah. And, and then, uh, the, yeah, it's great. I loved that. I mean, the only quibble I ever really have about the whole high school reunion aspect of this film is the fact that it goes to the very, very tired bit of having the reunion at the school yeah. Or it, it serves the plot because, you know, it's easy for them to get rid of the body in that scene. So, I, and you can excuse it for a movie that's that good. You're like, okay, whatever. They're using the local high school. Because normally it would be a a hotel. Like Romeo and Michelle, Romeo, Romy and Michelle, it's held in, I believe, like a hotel or, or catering hall. And yeah, ours, ours was held in a, um, in a, in a, conference room at a casino yeah places like that and that that's me nitpicking at that point but um but yeah the, the conversations are all so natural i mean that 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 conversation they have in the bar uh where the actress who played he's played she's played by john cusack's other sister she comes in and interrupts basically the first date yeah the that Martin and Debbie have gone on in 10 years since he stood her up on prom night. Yeah. And it's a, again, it's a natural conversation. You know, you've everybody, even, even not on a reunion, if you were to ever go back to, if I was ever to go back to home, my hometown, go out and get a drink because I just didn't feel like hanging around my parents' house. I'd run into those people. Yeah. I mean, like I spent as much time, like the reunion I went to was secondary to seeing all these other people because a lot of my friends were like a year younger than me. Uh-huh. So they weren't going to be at the reunion. So I had to meet up with them and it was just like all of these bizarre conversations that that just everyone has them. And it's weird because when I was having them, I was very aware of what I was self-aware of what was going on, but I didn't care. Yeah. And that's why this film feels so authentic. Like the, the, the bully guy that picks the fight with him that ends up being kind of a sweet scene. Cause he talks the guy down. Yeah. Cause you know that Cusack could just annihilate this guy. Yeah. Like it's not a, it's not a fight. And then he's just like, I've got poetry <laughs> and he takes it out and you can see mini driver just like looking like, Oh, that's so cute. And then like 30 seconds later, she sees him killing a guy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> But no, all of those, you're right, the conversations and, and the moments and how uncomfortable he is the entire time Yes, until the end of the film. Yes. It's like palpable. Yeah. And like he, he doesn't want to be there, but he's there because the, that's where the job is. But also, you know, it's just like. Sorry, I just flashed back to the scene where where where, where Joan Cusack reads the, the invitation to the reunion. 
in the very beginning of the movie. So <laughs> he's just like, why are you so obsessed with this? She's like, I'm fascinated by the idea that you're from somewhere or whatever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he, um, Cusack does that sort of nervousness well. Mm-hmm. And he's tempered it over his career because it's almost like he's played that age very well. Like there's a nervousness about Lloyd Dobler and say anything mm-hmm. that Martin kind of has, but Martin is a lot darker. He's a lot older and he's, well, Martin's that. 10 years older than, yeah. than, than the character would be and say anything. Yeah. And Cusack's yeah. playing him like he knows that uh-huh. as opposed to somebody who would go back and play this character and it would not, would just not get that that very very well the same way he he's just burned out and sick of everybody's shit throughout most of high fidelity yeah and and it's appropriate for the age that he is because it's just it and and that's that's the maturity of an actor which is really really impressive because when he's given the sure thing and he was about what 17 18 years old when he shot that he's manic yeah, he's silly, and it works. It's a great movie, but he's he's a lot here. He's a lot more subdued, and he's not playing it to be cool. He's playing because that's the char- That's what the character demands. And you're right. He just the whole movie. He is so uncomfortable. Well, yeah. it's you know he's facing a past he ran away from. Yeah, uh, and and then realizing why he ran away from it. And- like you know good storytelling is supposed to do mm-hmm. um, <laughs> it's like we say these things like they're, they're, they're i think we say these things like we're surprised to see them because so many films don't have that kind of subtlety it's or that kind of richness yeah it's because they're well because so many films are trying to especially in that era the 90s and into the 2000s they are trying to either capture some sort of nostalgia thing mm-hmm. for you they're going for the easy joke, either a gross-out joke on the level of the Farrelly brothers or something completely bizarre and immature on the level of Adam Sandler. Um, and I'll give Adam Sandler, Billy Madison, and Happy Gilmore and The Wedding Singer. Beyond that, I, I really can't. Um, or they're trying to be the quotable movie. Mm-hmm. They're trying to be Caddyshack or Fletch or... Airplane or Young Frankenstein or Holy or da- Grail or Dazed and Confused or Empire Records, Records yeah. or Clerks or mm-hmm. something like that. Swingers, where... you know, Austin Powers, and to a certain extent as well. Yeah, we're, we're... God, if 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 living in the nineties, if one more person said you're so money, I would have punched them dead in the face. I swear <laughs> before Almighty God. And, and if I heard one more Doctor Evil impersonation, I was gonna yeah. knock somebody's teeth down their fucking throat. So yeah, which which is sad because the first Austin Powers film is funny in spite of Doctor Evil. Yeah. <laughs> so this is how I know that movie's funny. My dad thought it was funny. <laughs> Okay, and he's very particular about his comedy. So it's just like I, I, I that's when my opinion of, of the first Austin Power movie changed, but still you don't see that type of thing. You know, reunion yeah. films are normally it's like everybody was trying to chase the big chill. Almost. Yes. That's what I, I don't um 
you probably haven't had a chance to listen to the, the episode I just released this morning, but that was my point about Beautiful Girls, that there's this plot in Beautiful Girls involving Timothy Hutton and Natalie Portman. Mm-hmm. If that plot is not in that movie, that movie is a ripoff of The Big Chill. It's okay. a third-rate Big Chill. The Hutton-Portman thing makes it something a little different, even though it, there is a Big Chill aspect to it. But you're right. A lot of those types of movies do try to chase the big chill. And the big chill was kind of like, I I won't say it was like a a fluke because it's a very well-written film. And you have, when you put those actors together, something good is going to come out of it. It was a sleeper. Yeah, definitely. It's a sleeper hit. It was something that nobody expected. I mean, you don't expect to put Jeff Goldblum and Glenn Close and Tom Berenger in a film together. It's just like, who the hell casts this film? And Kasdan, Kasdan up until that point had written, um, he'd done Empire, he'd done Raiders, and he had done Body Heat. Mm-hmm. None of which are the big chill. So that's another thing where it's like, you know. Where the hell did this come from? Yeah. There, I mean, you can kind of see Silverado coming out of that, yeah. but... You know, yeah, it's just like he he's the guy that wrote Luke, I'm your father. Yeah, so. That's that is honestly that is uh, that's like Mike Nichols type of versatility there. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like when you can. But you see, here's the common theme between everything he wrote. It's all character. Yes. So I, I, I think that is the one thing that is great about Gross Point Blank is that. Even Dan Aykroyd, who is over the freaking top, oh yeah, is still a fairly well-rounded character. His motivations are simple, but because it's Dan freaking Aykroyd, yes, something else comes out of that, you know. And he and Cusack have this great "I hate you" chemistry yes. between each other. Yep. Like when they're going at it at that little diner. Just like it starts as like this friendly conversation, which turns adversarial, which turns into them pulling guns on each other. Yeah, <laughs> and it gets it gets tense, and it's a movie that, um, I mentioned how you know the plot doesn't get in the way, but it has a discernible plot. Where so many mm-hmm. character movies of this era don't have a plot. Dazed yeah, and Confused like... does not really have a plot. Yeah, you're watching Dazed and Confused because you're remembering what it was like to be in high school and you kind of feel bad for the the skinny kid and you're happy that he hooks up with the girl at the end and you laugh at Ben Affleck because Affleck is actually pretty good in that film. Oh, yeah. You feel for um, it's Jason London in that one. Yes. Because Jeremy London was it's in, in Mallrats. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I... Uh, Sorry, this is a weird tangent, but uh, I uh, I was friends with a girl when I was in college, uh, whose mother wrote Man in the Moon. Is that the Reese Witherspoon movie with Reese Witherspoon and Sam Waterston? So I went to hang out with her at one point. I spent like the weekend at her mom's place in in, yeah. in South Carolina, and we we rented Mallrats. London was in there, so then I got to hear about the summer she spent hanging out with Jeremy and Jason London <laughs> while they filmed Man in the Moon. So it was just this really like she's like, I can't believe he's in this. I'm just like, I can't believe you know him. <laughs> I know, right? So um, yeah, it was it was just it was really strange. Yeah. Uh, but uh, no, it, it's just you know you watch those films like Empire Records 
the plot is somebody wants to buy the record store and they need to keep that from happening. Yeah. That's the the thin little like foundation. And the only reason you remember it is because there's a lot of great moments with these characters. Yes. And, and I've told you in, in other conversations where like movies like that have completely changed now that I'm pushing 40. Because mm-hmm. now I, I totally side with uh, the boss, with Joe in that film more than the kids. I'm like, God damn it. He's just trying to do his fucking job. Let him do his job. <laughs> that was that was my revelation about my so-called life where I'm watching that for doing that show last year and I start really sympathizing with her mother. But that's what makes those movies enduring, by the way. Yeah, that is that is because you can enjoy it on on several levels at different points in your life. I mean, dazed and confused is a total, oh, I remember what it was like to be sick. That's the appeal of that yeah. film. Whether you went to school in 1966, 1976, 1986, 1996, yeah. the dynamics are still the same. The jocks are still going to rule the school. There's still going to be that one guy that is way too old to be hanging out with the teenagers. Yeah. Because he just never left. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. Yeah. And there are certain signs of maturity, though, through certain movies. Like, there's a point in your viewing, your repeated viewings of Reality Bites, where you grow up and realize what a fucking douche Ethan Hawke's character is. <laughs> and she should never have. Now, Ben Stiller's kind of a tool in that movie. And I would rather one known a writer had just went, ended up with me. But um, <laughs> I had such a crush. I still have such a crush on her in that movie. I, but. But yeah, it's just it's that that weird like you what you bring to a movie like this uh, like these and um, there's things that you spot in this in this film. Um, there's a couple other things. Uh, I at, on the first viewings, um, I didn't realize how much depth Mini Driver was actually giving to Debbie. Oh my God! It is such a layered yeah, performance because she come superficially she comes off as the cool chick because she's got a cool job yeah she's she's a dj she's playing awesome music yeah she's got she's got an alternate 80s alternative flashback show and she's she's just she's got it together and but as things go on you realize like even that first scene where he just he literally walks back into her life Mm -hmm. completely out of nowhere on the air and you you could see her kind of doing her best to keep it together when she's you know taking calls and quizzing him and 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 stuff like she's you can you can if you watch her uh, if you've seen it well enough and you watch her she's in professional mode yeah and she's forcing herself to be in professional mode so that she doesn't lose it and you know, by the, at the end, of course, at the end, her reaction to him, to figuring out what he does, um, it's, it's, it's natural like everything else. It's not over the top, you know. Well, it's funny because you said she comes off as the cool chick, but then you realize she's playing the music from when she was in high school. She's still living with her dad. Yeah. She's still living in the same hometown. The moment he walked out of her life she's arrested development wise. Yes. 
And I think that's why her coming around to it at the end, yeah, it's romantic because it's, you know, <laughs> it's an action romantic comedy. Yeah. But at the same time, him coming to terms with who he is and her coming to terms with the fact that she has to leave all comes together at, you know, it's really, but it all just comes together right there at the end. Yeah. And they, um, they avoid making her, uh, drop a literary reference on you. Miss Havisham from Great Expectations. <laughs> uh, they avoid that by just, it's like a single line. He's like, you're living back at home. She said, yeah, my apartment burned down on devil's night. So that implies that she had left mm-hmm. at one point. Um, and, uh, see devil's night is not something that I was familiar with except until I saw the crow. Yeah. And, um, it apparently is a thing in, in, in Michigan. Uh, and in Jersey, apparently my, my, friend says well but, why would that surprise you yeah i know but <laughs> i'm point, sorry <laughs> point being that is jersey but point being um but you're right you're totally right in that she's she's on pause at that point and yeah this is to kind of pick it up where they not exactly where they left off but but at the end and and uh she's got she is a little more level-headed than he is or, or it's a little bit more. It, she's cynical in a different way, I guess is the the way what I'm trying to say. I mean, he's a cynical character. He yes. has to be by nature of his job. She's cynical because she's bitter, at least around him, um, and at least toward you know, and and putting on this act of being cynical and cool. You know, when she has one of my favorite lines is like, "People are going back to take stock in their lives." Here's my advice: leave your livestock at home. Which is such a DJ line, but it works. And uh, and she does, you know, she does a good accent. I'll give her that because Mini Driver is English. Yeah, she uh, she. It's funny. Uh, the, the same woman I told you before that uh, was a voice coach in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Uh, she actually. This this is what surprised me. She she was there to teach Cusack a, a Chicago accent. Huh. which I was like, I thought he would get that. But she t- she talked to me about British actors doing an American accent. And it was one of those moments where someone says something and you feel stupid that you didn't realize it because it's that freaking obvious, but you never really thought about it before. Uh-huh. And she said the the thing about some, because uh, she worked with Christian Bale on Newsies and Swing Kids. Okay. Uh, so... She goes, the thing about teaching a British person an American accent is that most of them say it's the absence of any accent. And a lot of them have to learn it phonetically. Like uh, Ian, whatever his last name is, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, that played Mr. Fantastic in in the two Fantastic Four films before the uh, abomination that's about to come out. Yeah. Um, he, uh, He had to learn all of his lines phonetically. Mm-hmm. Uh, to keep that accent. So when Michael Chiklis would improv, he couldn't do it huh. because he would lose the accent. But then you have people like Hugh Laurie, where if you would tell certain people that he's British, they would not believe you. Yeah, because it's that freaking good. And she, she's good at the you know like different types of accents. Like I don't think she's had the same accent in any in each film she's done. Mm-hmm. Like especially if you look in the '90s, her big film was that uh, 
dumb film I went to see only because Chris O'Donnell was in it and he was about to be Robin. Circle of Friends. Circle of Friends, which actually turned out to be kind of a sweet movie, but... I saw that with a girl. Yeah, I saw it with my girlfriend Erin, so like everything else that freaking summer. But um, I'm trying to remember if it was Kate or Kathy. Um, I'm not kidding. I dated two girls with the same name right after one another. And what's amazing is that they tried to play her as the dumpy, unattractive one, and I'm like, what? Because they had her. Are you they talking had her, about? They had her gain weight. <laughs> she was she's, still she's fat. fat. She's a fat one. Or she's oh, gorgeous God. in that movie. She was still the she was still the quote unquote fat one. In yeah, that but movie. that just that blew me away. But you know, yeah. it's just like seeing her in that, and then seeing her in this movie. And I'm trying to think of the other big movie. Oh, um, which I finally only recently saw for the first time: uh, Goodwill Hunting. Yes, I it's, don't think I've seen that whole movie. Um, here's the thing about Goodwill Hunting: uh, it is like Citizen Kane in that. A lot of filmmakers have used this uh, okay. as their indie movie template. Gotcha. So then it seems not as good because I was really struck. Like, it's almost a vanity project for Matt Damon. Hmm. <laughs> but you've got Robin Williams and, and, and Peter Skarsgård. Oh, no, not Peter Skarsgård. Um, the dude who's in the Thor movie. Uh, Stellan. S- Stellan Skarsgård. Oh, <laughs> not the guy that was Hector Hammond. No, the guy that helped out Thor. And that's how I will keep them straight from now on. But, you know, you have them working off of each other, and they're both brilliant. I mean, Robin Williams, you know, everyone liked to think of him as the, you know, and, and Family Guy was vicious at him about how he's constantly riffing. But that man, when you gave him a script, he, he was it was phenomenal. I mean, it was just, it's like one of those movies that I didn't watch until like six months ago. I don't ever feel the need to watch it again, mm-hmm. but I'm glad I did because now I see where like the rest of the '90s film gotcha. came from almost. So yeah, but she's she's amazing in that film. Like mm-hmm. she she's sweet and you feel bad for her. And I think that's that that this is uh, you know this is her. See, you like her. Pretty much no matter what role she's in. Yeah. Even when she's like the bad guy, you still like her for some reason. Yeah. And again, this movie is so perfectly cast. Even even the two NSA agents. Yeah. Hank Azaria and, and the other guy who they're a plot device. Yeah. Grocer ratted out Martin. So if Grocer wasn't going to get him, the feds were. And it was it was him just moving the chess pieces. And But they're like, they have some back and forth that's just like bumbling cop in a way that really, really works. And it's interesting seeing Hank Azaria in that type of role to begin with. I mean, you don't really, you know, you, you think of him mostly as like Mo Slezak at mm-hmm. this point. So I mean, or, or as the uh, the blue Raja in um, the most brilliantly described pretentious indie film ever, Mystery Men. Uh, Do you know where I first saw him? Like saw him, not where? the voices. He was Jay, the sleazy womanizing on Herman's, on Herman's head. head. Yeah, because like like her, him and Lisa Simpson were in that together. Yeah. 
Yes. Uh, so yeah, God, and, um, I was completely forgotten he was in that film. And Jane Sivet, who would go on to do, um, who was who would go on to play Carol Ross's ex-wife on Friends. Ah, uh, she was yes. Eddie. So, yeah, no. So that's that's why, as as much as I want to see Inside Out, um, every review that I read about how this is such an original idea on Pixar's part, I'm like, Uh, uh, I watched Herman's Head. (laughs) Yeah, we were one of the 15 people that did. But those that watched it loved that because that was it was it was Herman's Head, uh, where the Sunday lineup for for um, Fox. Fox back when Fox just put out the weirdest damn shows <laughs> like on a continuous basis it was so odd it was my uh god i just i just did a post about that a month ago about that documentary show called yearbook that they put on the air in 1990 for like nine weeks or whatever and it's like it was on prime time in their lineup at some point you're like only a network that's only three years old would get a would would think it was a good idea to put on a documentary series about high school in 1990 1991 that was not exploitative you know it was a serious mm-hmm. show that this is before re- reality tv um but yeah, oh god that those early days of fox some of those shows Ooh, just the weirdest like you know the the one with matthew perry where he, he dies and goes back in time to live with himself yeah to, to and then that just got completely swept under the rug it got uh, retooled for a second season and they ch- completely changed the title of the show too and then there was um the one with uh the writer god he, he was so the- on was that the Chris Lemon one? Duets. Yeah. Duets. And it was just like, God, I watched all of that. I watched Werewolf. Well, it was the Incredible Hulk. Yeah. With a werewolf. I know. But I watched and it. And it had Lance Legault in it. He's good value. Yeah. I mean, so. But you're talking to somebody who, like, since I didn't have cable, watched, like, syndicated shit that only 20 people know. Um, I watched. From Another Planet? Uh, yes, they they uh, they came from outer space. No, they came from outer space. That's remember right. Remember that one with uh, Chainsaw. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, my secret identity. Uh, well, that was my Saturday night, sir. It was Superboy and my secret identity. I uh, see. That was on Saturday afternoon where I was. It was on about like right after cartoons. Yeah, we lit. Uh, God, W O R. Was it W O R? Showed it. God, because I never knew that. Because 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 one of the Philadelphia stations. Yeah. To would, be, would play it at even in the evening. Yeah, out of New York, WR showed um, the 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 shows I remember watching on WR as opposed to WPIX were My Secret Identity, followed by Out of This World. Mm-hmm. Um, I had such a crush on that girl. Um, uh, Superboy. I remember watching. <clears throat> I may not have watched the last season of Superboy. I do remember watching at least the first seasons all the way through. Uh, they eventually picked up Baywatch. TNT. Uh, the Mr. T. Yeah, I remember that shit. That was on PIX for like, and I, I saw one episode. Um, PIX had Next Gen, WWR had mm-hmm. Highlander. That was the other show mm-hmm. that was on that channel. The uh, one of the ones I don't remember the name of the show, and I don't even remember the premise. I just remember that 
the British woman from Frasier was on it. Was it Throb? Yeah, she was blue. The record company? Yes! Yeah, Throb. (laughs) Okay, okay, we are... We have just decided another episode. We we have just figured out another episode. So uh, (laughs) we'll table that. But um, final, um, because we're we're getting... uh, it's two in the morning, uh, and, and both of us do want to go to bed at some point. Um, last thoughts on uh, – let's talk a little bit about the soundtrack and then uh, – Oh, so, yeah, Jesus. So, I mean, seriously. They released two CDs. Um, the second one kind of came out a few months after the first one because the first one sold crazy. and The, the first one is – the Wedding Singer would come out about a year later. Mm-hmm. Everybody had the Wedding Singer soundtracks. Yes, because it was like tailor made for that sort yeah. of thing. Because the wedding series is like this eighty, it's eighties flashback pop. This mm-hmm. is all. There's a lot of eighties. There's a couple of nineties songs on it, but it's a lot of eighties and it's a lot of new wave alternative um, stuff. The Pixies are, are on one there. I think there's an Echo in the Bunnymen track. Maybe I know there's a Susie and the Banshees track in there somewhere. Um, it uses Queen and David Bowie's Under Pressure mm-hmm. better than I've ever seen in a movie before or on a TV show before. It, 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 I think that's what made this soundtrack work so well because it's yeah. not it's it's like when you watch The Crow, for example, mm-hmm. that soundtrack seamlessly blends into that film. Yeah, like I watched it about a year ago and I was shocked, shocked at how well that film, a film that I thought was going to just totally not age well at all. Suddenly it's almost timeless. I'm, I'm actually really impressed. And the music, despite being so nineties feels so part of it. And then you see Crow city of angels and you realize, Oh, we're just putting a soundtrack together. That movie was awful. But you know, you have, you have blister in the sun from the violent Femmes because mm-hmm. they graduated in 1986 and that makes perfect sense. They were, so, dude. They were playing that at my prom in the nineties. I mean, that's that song. Yeah, that was a, that, that song was had a pretty, staying uh, power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but well, you see, my I, I I have three older sisters, so mm-hmm. uh, until I was about in the ninth grade, I didn't have my own musical identity. Ah. I just listened to whatever they did, and and Mary, you know, when she was a teenager, was into you know just eighties pop, you know, the, the Footloose soundtrack, yeah. and Rio, and stuff like that. Ginny <coughs> got into Alabama, and then The Doors, mm-hmm. and then The Violent Femmes. Interesting. Yeah, I had four. Into- yeah, I had four older cousins on my mom's side, two three of them who were girls, um, two of them were sisters, and Ingrid and Jennifer. Ingrid was into uh, Duran Duran, the Thomas was like modern English, that sort of stuff. Jen, I don't know. Kelly, my cousin Kelly, my Brian's older sister, my cousin Brian's older sister, was really into Van Halen and Poison and Motley Crue. <laughs> so that, that was how I discovered hair metal. Cities and Dust was the Susie and the Banshees. Okay. By the way. I have both albums. Um, They're upstairs. And I got to say, I'm going to love Gross Point Blank for the rest of my life because it washed, let my love open the door out of fucking 
and into this film. Yes. Like, like now I don't have to think about it as the opening song to a craptastic Scientology-filled film. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, when I saw Pulp Fiction and they had that scene between uh, Bruce Willis and John Travolta where they were just looking at each other. Yeah. I always wanted to, I, I want to, if I ever meet Quentin Tarantino and I have one question to ask, and I was like, was that a look who's talking thing? Like they're actually on screen together now, so they're looking at each other. Or were you just trying something else there? Because that's all yeah. I really want to know. <laughs> not only that, the the version of Let My Love Open the Door is not a, it's a remix, and it's a really, really well done remix, oh, too. It's gorgeous. Gorgeous. It, it just, it just, encapsulates the scene it's in yeah and the clash the mm-hmm. clash are on this uh, rudy can't fail because they graduated in 1986 yes yes both of them um i know rudy can't fail is off london calling i don't know what armageddon time was off of but um yeah so final thoughts on on this movie this is this is personally one of my if i have five if i have my all-time desert island top five john cusack <laughs> movies all right all right in chronological order more or less because i can't remember which one of the first two came first better off dead the sure thing because they both came out really more or less the same year say anything this and high fidelity i mean that to me, that's if 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 I have to sit down and tell somebody like nobody has ever heard of or seen John Cusack movie, and I have to give them a stack of movies, I start with these five. I'm I'm gonna um, I I want a double disc set of Better Off Dead and One Crazy Summer because yeah. I I can't choose. Um, this movie, High Fidelity. Um, I don't want to put say anything on it there because everybody puts say anything on the list, and that's well, nothing to you. That's just I'm me. the one with the poster on my wall. So. Yeah, so uh, Con Air. Not even kidding, Con Air. Um, and uh, Fat Man and Little Boy. I haven't seen that one, so I've it's, heard good things though. Did you ever watch the A Team as a kid? Yes, I also watched it in college when they used to rerun it on okay. TNT. Okay, I want you to TNN. Rap- TNN. Want- that's what it was. I want you to wrap your head around the concept of Howling Mad Murdoch is Robert Oppenheimer. Jesus. And he's I may have brilliant. <laughs> I always think of him as Barkley from Star Trek The Next Generation, the mm-hmm. the, 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 inter, the Federation officer with the worst luck ever. They were ever wanting to do an episode where something really bad happened to one of the officers. It always happened to Barkley. <laughs> um, but you got him as Oppenheimer... And Paul Newman as the uh, as the general in charge of the project. Okay, mm-hmm. like so you have the the scientist and the soldier, but in the background you have as one of the scientists you have John Cusack, and you have John C. McGinley who's the base doctor, uh, and you have Natasha Richardson who is. Uh, Oppenheimer's lover, Bonnie Bedelia is playing his his wife, and John Cusack's love interest is Laura Dern. Ooh, eighties. Okay, Laura Dern. yeah, eighties Laura Dern. Before something like 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 her and and Jeff Goldblum were married at one point. I'm glad I, I, I did a child come from that because that's going to be the weirdest looking. Clark Gregg was in this film. I didn't know that. I got to watch it again. Mr. Jeff I want to see. Right? No, no, Clark, Gray, Mr. Jet, nice. 
<laughs> that uh that took me a second but very nice <laughs> no it's i would recommend it simply because it is not historically accurate but it's uh-huh. a well done drama uh and you have 80s fred dalton thompson uh, uh you know in a military role like nice. he always played in the freaking say. 80s <laughs> like, before law and order you see, you see him in necessary roughness, and you're like, "What the hell are you doing in this film?" <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, but gross yeah, point it's blanket. Yeah, two o'clock itself, in the morning. I'm yeah. all over the place. Yeah, I was gonna I say, apologize. gross point blanket itself, though. Um, if you have not seen this movie, see this you, movie. Yeah, I was about to say this. This is one of those films that you know. I don't know if it has a cult thing about it because I don't hear too many people talking about it. It gets a lot of, it, but it's never talked badly about. Whenever yeah. I've seen it on something, whenever I've heard it mentioned in something I read uh, on, like the AV Club or something like that, I mean, it's it's always looked upon fondly. So it's not hard to come by either. It's on. It's been on DVD for for years. Um, mm-hmm. It's not streaming on Netflix at the moment, but I'm sure it pops up on cable. Um, it's like this is not an obscure film. You know, this isn't. It's not the wildlife or uh, you know or or mega force or something that you actually have to track down. Deeds, not words. Deeds, not words. So, all right. So before uh, before I let you go, please tell uh, the audience where they can find you. Ah, uh, views from the long box at viewsfromthelongbox.com. Uh, I um. You know, it's just my my main show where I talk about whatever pops into my head about talking about comic books that day. From Crisis to Crisis, the Superman podcast with your co-host, with Jeffrey Taylor, where we talk about the post-crisis Superman. Uh, Comics Monthly Monday, where Scott Gardner, uh, Chris Honeywell, and I uh, play like the the most uh, amazing uh, conversation between three people that are at the di- literally the different ends of the spectrum. Yeah, like I'm in the middle. Chris is on one side. Scott's on the other, and I get to bounce off the two of them. Uh, plus, Scott and I do Tales of the JSA, and Tales of the JSA presents Crisis on Infinite Earths. Plus, oh, so good. Yeah, we, we, we the fourth episode just came out as of this recording. And I, at some point, we're going to record number five, I promise. I know, I just um, sent you guys an email. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> the um, And uh, every once in a while, Bailey's Batman podcast, which I even have Tom on for. Yeah. Because Tom and I can talk about some Batman, apparently. Oh, yes, we can. All right. As for me, um, I will be back in August with, I know I'm going to be doing at least one or two Disney World episodes after my vacation and have a couple other things planned, but don't want to reveal any plans yet just in case I change my mind or something doesn't happen the way I want it to. So until then, thanks for listening and take care. My girlfriend, she's at the end, she is starting to cry Let me go on, like I blister in the sun Let me go on, big hands, I know you're the one You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, and other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. 
Images, clips, show notes, and essays on other topics random in the world of popular culture can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Pop Culture Affidavit also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is the division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness.